The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Amen. Amen. Well, this, uh, this morning we're continuing and actually finishing our series on salvation that we've been in for about the last month and a half. And I was, uh, I was reflecting this week and thinking people and throughout history have always loved to make predictions about the future, right? And bold statements about whether things will work or not work. And the great thing is we can look back and there's no shortage of examples to see people hilariously wrong with their takes on the future around certain topics or things. And many of these are, are famous, some you may not have heard before, right? One of the, the more well-known ones from the early uh, 1900s was the White Star VP who said this, boldly proclaiming, there is no danger that the ship Titanic will sink, the boat is unsinkable. That didn't go, turn out very well, right? Uh, about 50 years before that, in the 1800s, the president of Western Union said this about this new invention coming online in America. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. Uh, about 15 years ago, there was a tech president who said, there's no chance that the iPhone will have any significant market share. All the Apple employees are very thankful that he was wrong. Uh, Oftentimes, these, uh, these wrong takes on the future are around pop culture, and people make bold statements around pop culture or things. Uh, in the 1960s, there was a music exec who said this, the Beatles have no future in show business. We don't like their sound. Groups are out. Four-piece bands with guitars in particular are finished. Yeah, 60 years has proven him very wrong. Or about 20 or 25 years ago, there was an author who was trying to pitch a book to a publishing company, and she was rejected. And in the rejection, the response that she was told was that children aren't interested in witches and wizards anymore. And so J.K. Rowling took her book elsewhere, and now is the first author who's a billionaire because this publishing house didn't want to publish her book. And when we, we think of the future, when the Bible talks about the future, when it comes to our salvation and the future experience we have yet to come, the term that, that comes to mind that the Bible uses is glorification. Glorification. And when it talks about your salvation, that you will one day be glorified, the beautiful truth that Scripture has is no matter how good or bad your life is, no matter how good or bad your life has been, when you are a Christian, because of Jesus for you, the best is yet to come. What you have in store waiting for you one day with Jesus, for every single one of us can live with his confidence that the best is yet to come. Glorification refers to the final removal of sin from our lives in the eternal state when we live with God. And a helpful way sometimes to think about glorification is to tie it to what we've talked about the last two weeks as we've been walking through the series. So two weeks ago, we talked about justification and how we are now free from the penalty of sin. Remember that because of what Jesus has done, he took the penalty for your sin. If you're a believer, God will never punish you for your sin because Jesus has already taken the penalty for it. We are free from the penalty of sin. And last week we talked about sanctification, how we are becoming free from the power of sin in our lives. And this growth towards Jesus, that the power of sin should be less and less as we grow in maturity and grace and walking with Jesus. And finally, we, reach, we, we achieve and reach glorification it is the removal of the presence of sin in our lives. 
Not just the penalty, not just the power, but the presence of sin itself will be gone and removed from us. Romans 8 says this, and those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, sometimes when the Bible talks about it, if you look at a verse like this, and you'll say, well, was glorification is glorified? Is that something that's already happened? Because it seems like it says, well, glorified, like it's already something fully experienced. Because glorification is based off of what God has done for you, the Bible talks about it in terms that it's already complete, even though it's not already fully experienced by you. Glorification is already and not yet. It's already been guaranteed because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, but it's not yet fully experienced in our lives because we don't fully experience it yet until Jesus comes back. A common illustration for this that I actually read two different times this week and people describing this is a World War II illustration. And they said in World War II, when D-Day occurred, it was the turning point in World War II. And from that point on, victory was basically guaranteed. But victory wasn't fully realized till basically a year later. There was still that interim period. And so think of it this way, on the cross, D-Day happened. It was the turning point in history. Your salvation and everything that goes with it is promised and secured because of what Jesus did on the cross. But not all of it is fully realized yet until Jesus comes back one day. And we live in that gap in between what Jesus has done and now the promises that we will fully realize upon his return. There are three keys that we're going to look at this morning in understanding this idea of glorification and what it means. And first is simply this, that God is a God of glory. The God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, God is a God of glory. Now, we use this word a lot when we talk about God, the word being glory. We've used it as we've sung already many times this morning that God is a God of glory and we give glory to God. But we often use the word and we don't really define it or think through what it is. See, glory, when it, when it comes to scripture, it, glory is the majesty, the weightiness and the beauty of God. Literally in the Old Testament, the same word for glory is the same word for weighty, the heaviness of something, but in a good way. And see, it's a little different than the, the, what we think of as the attributes of God, right? That God is love, that God is just, that God is always there, that God is always powerful. These are attributes describing him. The glory of God is the sum of all of his attributes as they are seen and experienced by us. It's his visible splendor and majesty. And when God's glory... In, the, in scripture is often revealed, especially in the Old Testament, there's images that go along with it. Some of these common things that, that are there when God's glory is revealed are things like shining light, fire, brightness, thunder, and majestic beauty is seen. And, and the Bible talks about how God's glory is evident in many ways and seen, but one of those that it highlights on how we can understand and see the majesty, the splendor, the greatness of God is in the world that he has made. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, we are fortunate enough to live in a place where this verse means a lot to us. I sometimes, as the one who lived in the Midwest for 20 years, I think people there read this and they go, does it really, though? Like, do you know how cold it is outside, right? In California, we go, oh, okay, yeah, we get this. 
We get this, right? Because you've been to Yosemite. You've been to Big Sur. You've, you've walked through a redwood forest and you've been drawn to something greater than yourself. And the reason that, that we are drawn to things like that and they, they evoke such strong feelings of awe within us is because they reflect something greater that is God himself. And they're actually a reflection onto the greatness, the majesty, not just of the trees or of the ocean as great as those are, but they reflect actually God himself. And so the world around us demonstrates and shows us how great and how glorious our God is. There are various events throughout scripture where God's glory is said to be displayed. Many of those are prominently seen in the Exodus event in the Old Testament when Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. And they occur often around Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments was given and where God met with his people. In Exodus chapter 24, starting at verse 16, it says this, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Right, and so you have these clouds, these fires, these images that evoke such strong feelings of awe of the people who are there witnessing it with their eyes. A few chapters later, Moses, still on Mount Sinai, says this in, in chapter 33 of Exodus. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim, my, and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's Yahweh, his personal name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." See, God is so glorious. His grandeur is so great that he says, literally, Moses, if you were to see it, you would die. Like as a human, you can't take how glorious and how great I am. It would literally kill you. And the Old Testament is filled with these images of this glory, the majesty, the splendor of God. We don't even have time this morning to look at all the prophetic visions of, of Isaiah and of Ezekiel and of others' prophets seeing God and trying to describe it in such awesome terms as they are blown away by the majesty, the greatness of God. But then a shift happens at the end of the Old Testament because God's glory is no longer displayed on mountains and in clouds and in fire, but his glory is now displayed in a person. John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That's the miracle of Christmas, that this awe-inspiring grandeur of God is now not seen and displays out in nature necessarily, but is now seen first and foremost and most fully in the person, Jesus Christ. And John's saying, you want to see how great, how good God is? Look at Jesus. He is the full embodiment of the glory of God. Right there, the majesty, the greatness of God is closest and easiestly seen in Jesus himself. And Jesus backed this up in his life on showing that he displayed and possessed the full glory of God that God was seeing through him. One of these events is clearly 
seen in the, in the book of actually Matthew, Mark, and Luke refer to the event called the Transfiguration, where he allows his glory to be seen. Mark documents it this way in Mark chapter 9. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Verse 7 says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Notice how the images of the transfiguration mirror the images on Mount Sinai of clouds and of brightness and of thunder, of a loud voice that that God is specifically saying all of these images that were displayed on Mount Sinai of my glory are now displayed in my son in Jesus. Jesus is the full embodiment of the glory of God. One author put it this way, glory then is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all of his goodness and the fullness of his revealed character. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. God himself come among us in all his goodness and in the full revelation of his person. And so the glory of God is this awe-inspiring beauty of his goodness, grace, love, and mercy that is displayed towards us. Now it's so important that we start here in understanding that God is this God of splendor, of majesty, a God of glory, because your vision, hope, and expectation of the future is directly correlated to your view of God. Your expectation, your vision of what eternity is like, of what heaven, of what your future will be, is directly correlated to how you view God. One author many years ago put it very famously, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And his point in saying that is, listen, there are Christians who believe in Jesus, who who believe who are Christians, but still have a small view of God, who don't understand that God, don't understand his greatness, don't really have a a grasp of the magnificence of what was done for them, of, of the grandeur of God. And if you have a small view of God, you will have a low expectation of what your future is like. Why? Because you don't have a big view of God. But when your view of God starts to reflect the accurate view that the Bible teaches, that he is great, he's filled with glory, his majesty fills the earth, then suddenly your expectation of the future is now different and it shifts because you get to be with this glorious God for all of eternity. You know, I like to, to think of it this way. So often we have misunderstandings about, about heaven and about eternity. And one of the things that, that I've heard many times is people are like, well, you know, I'm just afraid it's so long. I'm, it's just going to be boring. Right? It's going to be boring. Like forever? That sounds like a really long time. Like I get bored easily. It's just going to be boring. I like to think of it this way. And we've already looked at in Psalm 19 how it talks about creation displays the glory of God. And there are people, regardless of their religion or or background, a a word commonly described when you are out in nature and and see utter beauty, it's often described as having a transcendent experience, right? It's, It's a transcendent experience. It's like you are pulled from beyond yourself into something else. And every single one of us, I think, have had those. I know I certainly have many times where we are out in nature and have these experiences like it. Have you ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon and tried to see the bottom? Have you ever sat at Tunnel View in Yosemite and watched the waterfall and the huge granite faces? 
Have you ever watched the sunset in Big Sur as the waves are rolling in and it's the perfect color palette all across the sky? There is something that evokes our hearts and our souls within that. And no one in those moments sits there and looks at that and goes, I'm kind of bored right now though. Like, this is stupid. Why? Because it's such a beauty that our hearts are drawn to it. Now get this, that is just a small picture of the glory of the creator God that he allows us now to enjoy. See, if we think we're gonna be bored in heaven one day, it's because you don't understand the glory of God. Where God is present and we are with him, boredom will be the last concern, the last things on our mind because we will be so blown away by how beautiful and great and it will be the most captivating and exciting experience there is. And so God is a God of glory. The second thing that we see throughout scripture though is then God shares his glory with us. That God is this God of grandeur and greatness, but God now shares his glory with us, his creation. It's that this majesty of God is now to be seen in our lives and through our lives. How is this experienced? How is God's glory shared and seen within our hearts? Well, it's how all of salvation is realized. And it's the doctrine of the union of Christ. That all you have is because you are united to Jesus when you place your faith in him. Colossians puts it this way. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus in you is the hope of glory in your hearts. See, all of salvation is because we are united to him. Forgiveness, adoption, justification, all of that happens because of what Jesus has done and we're now united to him and we have this confident expectation of the future. Now, glorification is a doctrine, yes, that refers to the future, but it starts in the present now because it's Jesus living inside of us and to be reflected and seen through our lives. That when we understand of who God is and the glory he is and that because of salvation now Jesus resides in us, that we long for our lives to be reflections of his glory to those who are around us. And I think starting to understand that the glory that God gives us is himself united to us and Jesus now seen through our lives helps us understand what this can look like in our lives. See, does the fact that we're united to Jesus and we're to glorify him with our lives, does this negate suffering and hardship and pain from our lives? Well, sadly, it doesn't. It doesn't. And one of the, the easiest reasons to explain why not is because was Jesus exempt from suffering and hardship and pain? Quite the opposite. No, he was not. In fact, the greatest display of God's glory was seen in the moment of Jesus's greatest suffering. The greatest display of God's glory is the greatest moment of suffering in Jesus's life. Jesus, knowing he was about to go to the cross, knowing what was to take place, prays this to God in John 17. He says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. That's referring to his, the crucifixion throughout the book of John. Notice what he then says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. See, if God was most glorified through Jesus's suffering, why would we expect it to be any different for us? 
that God's glory is most evidenced and seen through our lives now, not in good, not in times of prosperity and blessing, but his glory is most evident and can be on display in times of our hardship and the pain that we experience in life. That's why in Romans 8, it says that we are heirs with him if we suffer that we may be glorified with him. Meaning if you want God to be seen in your life as glorious, it's going to be through the hardship and pain you experience. That's when God will be seen as glorious in your life. See, when we we start to understand this, we'll start to grasp more and more that every hardship in your life is a unique opportunity to put Jesus on display. Every hardship in your life is a unique opportunity to put Jesus on display to the people around you. That it's no longer about you, but it's God's glory seen through you. See, suffering strips us away of all of our sufficiency, of the things we place our hopes in, our desires in that are other than God, and should cause our hearts to turn back to Jesus. And what happens in suffering is it strips away those things and our hearts turn back to Jesus and we look again to Jesus for the hope that we should have been looking for all along. He starts to be more glorified in our lives. As Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled faces. He's just been referencing that same Moses experience on the mountain where he couldn't see God because it would have killed him. But now with unveiled faces, we can behold the glory of the Lord. And when we see this, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I just wanna remind you that God's glory is most seen in your life, in your times of hardship and difficulty and pain. And sometimes for me, that transforms how I think about it. Because for most of us, myself included, the first encounters we have with pain, our first prayer request, God, remove this. Right? God, remove this. What if our first prayer request was God, use this? God, use this for your glory. Instead of remove this pain, what if we lean and said, God, I, I don't want this. I'm not seeking after this, but God, would you use this somehow for your glory in my life and for those around me? Would you use this for me to see your glory more? Would you use this so those around me would see who you are through me? Not, God, remove this, but God, would your glory be seen in and through my life? See, God shares his glory with us and our lives are now meant to put his glory on display to the world. Thirdly, in understanding glorification is this, is that we all are looking forward to ultimate glory. That we all now are looking forward to ultimate glory. See, we will, we will be fully glorified, removed from the presence of sin when? When Jesus returns. Colossians 3 puts it this way. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. First Peter 5, when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That it's his return when this salvation will be fully realized, when the presence of sin will be removed from this world and from our lives. That's what we hold on to, what we look forward to with eagerness. One of the things that will happen when Jesus returns and we receive this ultimate glory is God will give you a new physical body. It says this in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even subject all things to himself. 
Now, the Bible doesn't go into details on exactly what features your new physical body will have one day in heaven, right? But I, I think, I think we, we so often underestimate the importance of this, that, that you will have, God will redeem and restore your physical body as it was meant to be. I don't know where the line was. I don't remember exactly what age it was for me. But all of us who are a certain age remember there's a line at some point where we used to have injuries in our lives when we were young because we like twisted our ankle playing sports or we got pushed over by someone so we sprained our arm. And then you cross a certain point where your major injuries come because you sleep wrong. Anyone else there? Right? You're like, I can't stand up today. What happened? I don't know. I slept. I went to bed. I went to bed and I didn't wake up the same, right? Like, you know, what catastrophic thing happened? I, I, the pillow must have been wrong. I don't know. And I don't remember what age it was, but I passed that point. And I remember, you know, when you're, when you're young, you're like, yeah, new body, what's the big deal? This one works great. And suddenly you wake up, you're like, nope, please come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> really, I don't, know, I don't know what this is, right? But I, but I need something new. And then a lot of us have aches and pains and groans. That's, that's a sign for you to hope for something better that there's something more coming for you in the future, that this body that you have, if you're able to live a longer life, will break down and will wear down. And the more it does so, we should put our hope and expectation in the future of what we will have when Jesus returns. Uh, an author who wrote a book on this idea was, uh, was recounting um, some correspondence he had with an old retired colleague of his who he knew was ill and was sick. And so he wrote him an email and saying, hey, I heard you were sick. I just want to see how you're feeling. And this guy's response was, um, you know, the, I, how am I doing? Uh, it's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> right, which, which we laugh at, but at the same time, what a great perspective. What a great perspective. Like, hey, I, physically, it may never get better in this life, but I know it will. I know it will one day. See, we, we not only as Christians have hope for our physical selves, but we, we have hope for the world that we live in as well. That God comes not just to redeem and to renew you, but the whole world that we live in. This is the new heavens and the new earth, which is promised throughout scripture. Romans 8 says this, creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That this world with all its brokenness and messed up systems and all the conflict and all that's in it, God's gonna renew that as well. And it won't just be you renewed, but the whole world will be renewed, released from the presence of sin, no, more, no longer to be experienced. Now, when the Bible talks about heaven, and the future realities of, of what believers have in store. Sometimes our focus is on the wrong things. We, we kind of, we want to focus on very specific things. I, I get to often at our kids' day camp do a Q&A with some of the elementary kids. And I love, they ask so many questions and oftentimes they revolve around this idea of heaven. And one of the questions that we always get is, well, what, like, what, what if I don't like gold in heaven? Like, it'll just seem very boring to me, right? Or what if I don't like playing music, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp all day? Like, am I, am I going, is heaven for me? Right? We have misunderstandings about heaven that are based off of cultural things, not even what the Bible would teach. See, the focus of the Bible is not on where heaven is, although it talks about this. It's not on even what you do for eternity, although it does address that as well. The focus in scripture when it comes to eternity is who you are with. Not where, not what, but who. And the focus for our hearts to look forward to is that you will be with Jesus. 
that you will be with Jesus. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope. Our hope that we will be with Jesus face to face. All things made new. The tears, the mourning, the pain, all gone. That's what every believer Every single believer has promised for them. There was this phrase that, that kept coming to my mind this week as I've been thinking and dwelling over this idea this whole week. And the phrase is this, that, that we should have abundant expectation. Abundant expectation. Now, we, we all have been at certain seasons of our lives, either had this in our lives or we, we are around people who are living with an abundant expectation in their lives. And the characteristics of it is it's, there's a joy, there's an enthusiasm that is contagious. And maybe it's not even your news, but you're with them, and so you're so excited because of their abundant expectation in their life. Have you ever been, or maybe you remember in your life, when, uh, around an engaged couple who's about to get married? Abundant expectation, right? Their life's about to get better, it's about to change, it's gonna be amazing, Right? And that joy is contagious to the people around them, right? I've done a lot of weddings. I've yet to do a sad one, right? Because they're happy. We're so there. It's so excited for what's going to happen. Abundant expectation. Ever met someone or talked to someone or you remember for yourself when you were expecting a child, especially that first child? Like you know your world is about to change permanently for the better. And you can't wait. You are so filled with joy and excitement. And that's why a baby showers, no sad baby showers, it's so fun. And everyone's excited because of the abundant expectation of the future. You know who right now has an abundant expectation of the future? Every kid under the age of 10. Because they see that Christmas tree and they see those gifts under there and they're like, it's just a matter of days now. And I see things in there that I know are from grandma and grandpa. I know are from mom and dad. There are things in there that I want and they have an abundant expectation. Why? Because they're so looking forward in anticipation to what is under there. See, Christians should have this sense of abundant expectation in their lives. And here's the amazing thing. Some of those other things that we have abundant expectations for could let us down in the long run. Right? Maybe the gift isn't what she wanted. Maybe the marriage doesn't work out. Maybe the child passes away, right? Well, there's no guarantees with any of these things that it will fulfill our expectations. God will always meet your expectations. You won't get to heaven one day and be like, well, this is kind of a disappointment. I was hoping for something better than this, but you know, God should have asked me for advice when he made this place. You will not be disappointed. We should have this abundant expectation in our lives. See, this, this is our great hope. This brings perspective to all of life and especially brings perspective in times of challenge and difficulty and hardship. 
Romans 5 says this, therefore through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And because we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Yet that our rejoicing in the hope that we have of the glory of God is so strong, we'll rejoice even in our sufferings now. Why? Well, he writes a few chapters later, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Abundant expectation that no matter the hardships, the glory that is coming will far outweigh whatever it is that we face in the here and now. There's some of you who I know right now are going through some real challenges in your life. Physical, medical challenges, relational challenges in marriage or in parenting, job challenges, financial challenges, whatever the suffering or the hardship may be in your life, remember that because of what Jesus has done for you, the glory to come far outweighs the pain and the suffering that you will have to endure and to experience in this life. Christians should always live with abundant expectation because of what Jesus has done for us. God, we thank you for that sure hope that we have because of Jesus. Because the work on the cross has been done. Our salvation is in you. God, when we think of the future, it's not a question mark, but it's an exclamation point. We'll be with you for all eternity. And we worship and we thank you for this hope that we have because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.